You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. The presidency of Donald Trump may very well be remembered for his administration's contentious relationship with the truth. Indeed, when many speak of the current political age as the post-truth era of democracy, the catalyst is often seen as resting within the controversial Republicans' approach to politics. From the rise of alternative facts as a means to undermine scientific consensus, to the president's constant laments on Twitter over media scrutiny and the framing of his critics as fake news, the legacy of the 45th president of the United States will likely always remain chained to the ways in which truth and fact came under fire during his tenure. And perhaps no greater example of this exists than the end of that tenure, with Mr. Trump's recent electoral loss to the now president-elect Joe Biden sparking a stream of conspiracy and accusation from the Republican leader, and allegations of fraud and electoral tampering being posted by the president almost hourly on Twitter in the weeks since election night. While Mr. Biden's victory has been confirmed on the state level by the Supreme Court and by the Electoral College, it hasn't stopped President Trump from attempting to undermine that victory, even if no credible data exists to support his claims. What place does truth have in an era of post-truth politics? How does democracy survive in an age when truth is so easily reduced and reconstituted by leaders and citizens alike? And can we ever return to a politics of truth as the core of democratic practice? On this week's episode of the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, we interrogate these questions and more, and turn to the canon of political theory and philosophy for answers. Joining us this week is Taylor Green. Taylor is a political theorist and a PhD candidate with the Department of Political Science, specializing in the pangs of modernity and the philosophy of technology. Taylor, thanks for joining us today. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me, Asif. Uh, great to be back on this podcast. I think you're a wonderful interviewer. Thanks, man. It's great to have you back, and I'm, I'm glad you're always willing to participate. So we're obviously in a fascinating, you know, some people might even say a terrifying moment where truth has become just so incredibly subjective in politics. You know, subjectivity is always going to be there in politics, you know, because politics is very much about stretching the truth as a means to success. But today, the world of politics, it seems it's just inundated with conspiracy, and alternative facts and the denial of, of things that were once held to be sacred and irrefutable. And I'm wondering if looking back to the classics of political theory and philosophy, are there lessons to be drawn about all this? How have political theorists conceptualized political truth over time? I think political truth, or maybe to put it otherwise, the tension between philosophy and politics has always existed. It's interesting. I, I, I wanted to think through uh, this podcast with this essay from Hannah Arendt, which is entitled uh, Truth and Politics. And she's saying as old as Homer, who at once glorifies Hector, as he does with someone on the opposite side of the war in Achilles. And as kind of Homer lauds them both, we're getting a sense of truth, of impartiality, you know, against the partisanship within history. So, you know, it's a long-standing tradition in the West, our kind of grasp for truth, what that means. The word philosophy itself means, you know, the love of wisdom. This is where it comes from. But I want to turn particularly to, I think, a representative case uh, in the history of political philosophy, and this is Plato's dialogue, the Gorgias. So, The setting of the Gorgias is that Athens had a problem with sophists, uh, according to Plato. The sophists were a group who profited from professing wisdom. So the setting of the Gorgias has three interlocutors, uh, Polis, Gorgias, and Calicles, and they're discussing the nature of justice, oratory, rhetoric with Socrates. And we get the famous ethical proposition in the Gorgias, is it better to suffer injustice than to do injustice. And of course, Socrates answers, yes, it is better to suffer injustice than to do injustice. So we get this kind of timeless ethical proposition in the Gorgias, which is really interesting in regards to truth because the sophists were indifferent to truth. 
they focused on persuading the demos, the democratic people, the public, and they were not constrained by justice. So Socrates evidently, as he did with you know, all the other dialogues, has a problem with this. You know, why aren't you looking at justice? What, what is the end of oratory? He asks uh, Polis early on. So kind of the premise of the Gorgias is that the sophists are happier and that justice doesn't hold any weight in their argument and therefore leading to happiness. It is only about persuading people. So there's this word in the Gorgias, uh, techne, and techne is how we get our modern word technology. Technology is just techne and logos put together. Logos just meaning, you know, what is logical. This is a word we derive in our modern technology, but Socrates asked Gorgias, or he says at the beginning of the Gorgias, techne is a rational enterprise and a practitioner of techne always aims at some good. So it occurs to Socrates that oratory does not seem to be concerned with an end, just that is, it is not concerned with justice. So the Socratic dialogue uh, was a method of moving towards truth and Plato in all his dialogues has Socrates moving towards with discussants towards some truth. Our modern conception of rhetoric comes from the Greek rhetoroke, and this has polis claiming that his techne is oratory and that his end is speech. So this is the sophist response to Socrates' prompt. How, what is your end? What is your techne of oratory? And they say speech. And speech is a kind of protection against injustice. So to defend yourself against, you know, in the law courts, for example. Polis says suffering injustice is worse, reversing Socrates' initial ethical claim. Being unjust leads to a happier life. So the next question Socrates moves on to is kind of what is knowledge? And if we think today, like what is knowledge? You know, it's an accumulation of what we know so that we may disseminate what is real, what is reality. But this classical notion of what is knowledge, Socrates asks, don't we take every inquiry into knowledge to be for some end aimed at what is pleasurable or beneficial? We get a turn in the dialogue to Callicles, who is a... Uh, Socrates' main antagonist, I guess, in, the, in this battle. So the sophists believe that there was this law of nature, Callicles says, for which rules, laws, conventions, uh, the Greek term for this is nomos. So where the nomos kind of benefits the weaker against the restraint of the stronger. But in nature, Callicles says, the stronger always rule. And this is the sophist conception of the law of nature. Callicles says that philosophy has no use if we take this law of nature. Uh, you, you can't persuade the city. You can't persuade people against dying. And, you know, this is certainly an allusion to Socrates' death because Socrates was put to death and condemned by Athens uh, on two charges for corrupting the youth and being impious to the gods. So it's a funny allusion because Socrates could not even, in fact, persuade the city in another dialogue Socrates' students are willing to free him from jail after he had been condemned. And Socrates said, no, like, kind of do not free me. So he chose to stake his life on this ethical principle in the Gorgias, that it is better to suffer injustice than to do what is unjust. So it's a very interesting uh, perspective on truth in the classical conception of political thought. But coming back to the ending of the Gorgias here, Socrates asked Calcles, what do you mean that in nature the stronger are more worthier? How, how can we have a criteria for which to judge who is the stronger? Are they the most intelligent? Calcles responds that the more intelligent should have more of the share of the rule. They are better in their capacity to rule and should have more of a share. And in fact, should have an enlarged passions, should have passions kind of for everything. Socrates says, well, how can you know what is best for the city if one's passions rule and not your rational capacities, which can assert something like the common good? Calicles responds, living correctly means growing your appetites as much as possible. So today we can think of, you know, these billionaires. Why have two cars when you could have six Ferraris? You know, that is really living correctly. Socrates alludes, he has this interesting 
allegory here, he alludes it to a leaky jar. So you have to keep filling up your leaky jar every day. You have to keep filling up your passions. You need more interests as the soul is never satisfied because of a lack of ordered passions. And unordered passions should be guided by truth, as that is the truth in the world. The, the world is ordered. We look to nature. It is ordered. The cosmos is ordered. And therefore, this is the truth. And without some benchmark, how are you supposed to judge what is good or not for the city, for yourself? The good in life is not unrestricted passions or enjoyment, which we would call hedonism. If there is something called knowledge, it would be how we come to know what the good is. So it's interesting in your question, I'm thinking of this word demagogue. And as I was reading the Gorgias, the, the Greeks have three kind of nouns in which our word demagogue has, demagogue has been created. They have demagogia, which is a popular harangue, demagoros, which is a crowd pleaser, and demagorian, which is playing to the crowd. And still today, we look at a demagogue who plays on the passions of the crowd from a perspective of a not rational argument or kind of conception of the common good. So it's interesting as the Gorgias is ending here, there's a return to the craft argument at techne. And Socrates says techne is what makes us better. It is the art of making things better. How can we say oratory does this? If we look to the world, like what we see is an ordered cosmos. We see things that are in nature, rational, ordered, and it shows us to like align our souls uh, with the judgment of nature, that there is truth in the world. So Socrates asks if we can have a knowledge of, uh, that's a funny example, if we have a knowledge of swimming. And he says, yes, we can have a knowledge of swimming because it would be useful if someone falls into a lake. You know, it would be better if they knew how to swim than if they didn't know how to swim and they would drown. So even swimming has an end, and the end is to not drown which improves the human condition, as opposed to the initial claim of oratory not improving anything. So how can we say that some political leaders are good and some political leaders are bad? Why are some revered? So he cites Pericles and Themistocles, who were you know, great statesmen in Athens. Uh, and he says, how can you be indifferent towards them? Do not aim for what is pleasant, but aim for what is best, the harmonious ordered cosmos, uh, the truth. And the Greeks had a word for truth called aletheia, which was unconcealing or uncovering or like a revealing. So if we look to nature, it would uncover for us uh, the truth of existence. This is classical political philosophy's notion of truth, similar to how we could combat oratory without an end by looking to knowledge of what would be good. So in, in the Republic, we see the allegory of the divided line. We see the allegory of the cave. I'll take a quick second to explain them. The allegory of the divided line was Plato's theory of the forms. So how do we know what a true dog is? If we have tons of different breeds of dogs, how do we know what a true dog is? Well, Plato would say that what exists is the form of a dog. And this is the true idea. This is what is most true, the idea of the dog. Because how can we say, okay, we have different dogs within the world, Poodle, Great Dane, which one is the, the, the true representation of a dog? We couldn't say it would have to be something up the transcendental ladder. It'd have to be an ideal of a dog, which would be the most true. And in the allegory of the cave, uh, it's a very familiar, famous passage within the Republic. Plato is essentially saying we are looking at a wall of shadows. And this is what we see in life. We're seeing convention, the nomos, right? And we have to realize that it is just a puppet show or it's just reflections from how we're positioned in life. And, you know, we exit the cave and we're enlightened and we see all the true things in life, like the harmony and beauty of nature. But then we come back down in the cave and no one believes us. And in fact, he ends it with, if I recall correctly, the people who are still looking at the shadows on the wall would want to kill the truth seeker because they all they know is conventional wisdom. So I think the Gorgias and the Republic are great classical representatives of political philosophy that, for how we've defined truth in the past and over time. I like the fact that you brought up sort of the origins of demagoguery because, you know, much of the crisis that we see in this 
so-called post-truth era, politically speaking, seems to surround the rise of of contemporary demagogues in the form of populism. You know, the use of populist rhetoric, you know, which has seen the political fringes very much come to the fore of democracy and governance, and the sort of use of narrative mythology to kind of create this vision of a, of a pure and homogenous people who are under attack by elites or others or whatever. Now, obviously, much of this has been tied to the rise of the current American president, Donald Trump, and his, maybe we'll call it a contentious relationship with fact. But um, regarding this kind of anti-fact, anti-scientific bent in modern populism, what inferences can we draw from philosophy regarding populism and truth? As I kind of stated, there's this uh, notion of sophistry. So and the sophists were kind of, as I said, these people in Athens who had no purpose for their speech, but would have, uh, would profit from what they're saying. And their end specifically is power. So I found an interesting article uh, by Patrick Lee Miller called Trump, Truth, Tyranny, Plato and the Sophists in an Era of Alternative Facts. So it's kind of interesting. He's playing with these three themes that I also came across when I was looking at the Gorgias of truth, Trump, tyranny. And he compared what Plato was doing to the sophists for a way how we could analyze alternative facts. So I would agree with Miller's kind of argument insofar as he splits up truth into three categories in the ancient world. Going back to the ancient world here for a moment, the philosopher, the sophist, and the tyrant. Another essay I looked to was Hannah Arendt's Truth in Politics. So Arendt, as she explains, has a kind of more nuanced notion than Miller's three notions of the philosopher, the sophist, and the tyrant for a modern account of factual truth. So the philosopher, for Miller at least, is the truth teller, the truth seeker. You know, and we know this from the word philosophy. It's a lover of wisdom. They chase the wisdom in the world in forms of knowledge and truth to be able to grapple with existence. In Sophocles, uh, kind of classic play Oedipus, or Oedipus Rex would be the kind of Latin translation, like Oedipus the king or the tyrant. So not a truth seeker, but a truth teller. This is what Sophocles paints Oedipus as. And if you know something about Sophocles' play, you see a tragic fate <laughs> that Oedipus is met with uh, because he tells the truth that he thinks what the truth is. But he's compelled by fate to become a truth seeker, to see the world how it actually is. So anyway, these are classical plays as well. The tragic kind of phase in Athenian uh, drama, which is interesting and can be analyzed as well. But to return back to Miller, the philosopher cannot be a lover of falsehood. This would be a contradictory in words and in terms of what philosophy is, right? Much like the Gorgias, Miller is saying that the sophists will do what they have to to get ahead. And this is where Miller brings in Trump. You know, Trump is a sophist insofar as he only cares about getting ahead. He only cares about power. He does not care about the truth, you know, and will go to the extent of providing falsehood for the demos, the public, so that he may get ahead and win power. So the only goal, Miller says, is to win a court case, a business deal, you know, a democratic election. <laughs> this is the brush that Miller paints on the Trump campaign. You know, he doesn't care if people are moral. Trump only wants control over them. And an interesting, like what we witnessed in 2016 and in the rhetoric around the recent election is that these falsehoods seem to legitimize Trump among his followers even more, which is something very peculiar because if we look to the democratic impulse, there are portions of the demos or the public that are dissatisfied with the conventional notion of truth. So therefore they're willing to kind of follow a demagogue or you know someone who's chasing power, a sophist, in order to legitimize their own notion of dissatisfaction with conventional truth. So we're getting far away from the Greek aletheia because the Greeks held the notion that there are two truths. There's a, a truth by nature, like what they called phusis, which is just nature, and nomos, which is convention. So they had these two conceptions. So in this Trump case, I'm just kind of thinking through this, there are 
dissatisfaction with the nomos, which in modernity, these we have a different conception, which I want to get to here in, in the modern sense, but this kind of popular movement doesn't care about any benchmark or standard for truth. And they would get on board with the sophistry in order for them to tear down their conventional notions of truth. You know, the sophists specialize in a conviction of knowing without the truth, which is how, going back to the Gorgias, how would you know what you are sharing is a good or has a good aim? But the goal is always power. So Trump succeeded in winning the presidency that sophistry can attain power once more. And he didn't stop with the alternative facts or these questionable falsehoods once he became in power, which is very interesting. And, you know, Miller concludes his article with attributing tyrannical qualities to Trump because of this. And again, like I said at the beginning, there's been a long tradition in the history of political thought, but the divergence between the philosopher and the politician. Plato's answer is that we have philosopher kings in the Republic and they rule and order society. Uh, they're the ones with the most ordered souls who, in fact, have philosophy at the top of their ordered soul. So it's kind of interesting. Trump was not satisfied with, you know, his billion dollars, whether he rightfully lost it or not. Or It's interesting to see an expanded passions in order to not be content with a rationally ordered soul or something like this. So, you know, I think with Miller, the classical conception can still tell us much about our political sphere today. At the same time, this notion of truth and falsehood is further blurred in a democratic society because we live in modernity, which is a whole problem in and of itself. So a lot of words tend to get you know, tossed around with this political approach. Liberalism, totalitarianism, authoritarianism, even fascism. But it seems no matter what, this there's a general consensus that the populist approach is, is bad for democracy. You know, if it's based on falsehood, it's based on passions of irrationality, it's a bad thing. This makes me wonder then, you know, is there assumption here that truth is necessary for democracy to thrive? That's a very interesting question. So before I get, this makes me think of Arantese, where she distinguishes in a democracy between factual truth and opinion and the ways in which one informs the other. However, I want to make an assertion on modernity as I was just trying to unfold my thoughts now. So Machiavelli is an interesting figure in the kind of history of political thought. Machiavelli kind of reverses Plato's notion of truth. So if we want to talk about democracy or the modern forms of democracy, I want to speak for a second about Machiavelli. So Machiavelli is this figure in Renaissance Italy, but Machiavelli has this really interesting passage in The Prince. So The Prince is his most famous work. Uh, I think everyone in political science should have read The Prince. It's a classical foundational piece. But he has this really interesting passage in chapter 15 of The Prince. So he talks about the effectual truth rather than the imagined truth. So obviously there's a shot at Plato. The imagined truth in Plato, right? The ideal of the dog and not the different dogs in reality. Machiavelli would say, well, the different dogs in reality make a lot of sense and this is how politics is informed. So the, imagic, the imagined republics and principalities do not really exist, he says. We need to kind of stop imagining these things and look at the effectual truth of the world. So he has this distinction of how one lives and how one ought to live. So if one prescribes their life by how one ought to live, it'll bring their political downfall rather than the preservation. All shots at Plato and is, uh, I guess, aligning the soul with the harmony of nature, which would be how one would ought to live and how one lives. They would be conflated in Plato because it's all one notion of truth. And Machiavelli further says someone who professes goodness comes to ruin. So if you hold to an ethical principle, Machiavelli would say someone who lives their life according to that goodness comes to ruin politically. If you're always trying to do what is right in these particular circumstances, if you hold yourself to a moral standard of goodness, you will politically come to ruin. You know, politics is a brutal business where princes conspire against other princes and stab them in the back. And, you know, politics is a very dirty game. But a prince must learn how not to be good. 
is what Machiavelli claims. We need to stop holding on to this platonic ethical standard in which we can have a truth because the effectual truth, how things really are in the world is precisely different than what Plato is prescribing. I also had some thoughts because in our department here in political science, we have a foremost expert on this transition from Plato to Machiavelli with Professor Newell. And he, he puts this in the context of truth, but with the sense of ancient and modern tyranny. He says that the real and the ideal are conflated in the ancients, which Machiavelli finds very unfamiliar. What is real and what is most ideal is the highest and most enduring good for the ancients, as I kind of described with the Republic and the Gorgias. The Republic is an experiment in politics to resolve the tension between self-interest and the common good, right? And that makes sense. Like your soul is the common good in Plato's Republic. And this is the truth. This is the highest order of what it means to exist as a human being. But according to Machiavelli, if we stick with Plato, we will not have success in politics in the effectual truth of things. We will be chasing after some ideal philosophical truth that is imagined, that is not there for Machiavelli. So Newell has an interesting term that I agree with called the anthropocentric wisdom that Machiavelli now gives us in the history of political thought. So wisdom is the truth about politics for how things really are, which is setting things up totally for one's advantage, right? So it's so interesting that we come back to this sophistry. And I, I think Newell's thoughts are really good on this. He says that the pre-Socratics, which are just philosophers whose fragments have survived. Uh, it's only fragments. It's only like small axioms that we still have from philosophers before Socrates. Right? There's one called Heraclitus. And he says, you can never step foot in the same river twice. It's kind of counterintuitive, but what he's saying is the river is constantly in flux, that it'll never be the same. So Newell says that the sophists and the pre-Socratics have the same ontology, which is kind of picked up in a sense by Machiavelli and later by Hobbes. But what the pre-Socratics and sophists don't have is the pure randomness of our being. This notion that I touched on in the Gorgias of Techne is not the control of nature. And what Machiavelli is doing, especially as we see in chapter 15 of The Prince, is that he has a concept of virtue, which he differentiates and puts a little hyphen on the U to differentiate it from classical virtue. So Machiavelli, in essence, is starting modernity and how we're thinking about these things. He says you use virtue to be a good prince in the effectual truth of things to combat what he calls fortuna, which is just kind of nature or fortune or Machiavelli is, is like a remaking, like not in the classical conception of technique, but he's making a politics. And then further with Hobbes, he's doing the same thing. He's authoring a political community. He says, you would not like to live in nature. Nature may be true. The way nature is may be true, nasty, brutish, and short, but he comes in to form a social contract, which is the authorship of giving your consent, so you're, you are the author as the sovereign is the author, in order to give up the truth of nature, to, to live in an artificial construct of a community to meet our needs of preservation. So I am in the midst of many streams of thought, political philosophy here, but what I'm trying to say is how truth would affect democracy as this lineage of a transformation of how we think about nature from the ancient sense to the modern sense. In the modern sense, we have all these differing conceptions of truth because we live in a democratic society where we value the opinions of everyone. And that's what makes democracy strong. And there's this interesting notion of factual truth and opinion that Arendt brings up in her Truth in Politics. Factual truth is what we agree on beyond doubt what we agree on to define our political reality in democracy. So we would say something is true is that, uh, you know, everyone has a right to vote or something in society is a true democratic practice that, you know, we could say is a fact of living in Canada. And this is defining for rent our political reality, our bearings and our reference points for how we interact with people, which is a continuation 
of the modern project, but also a critique of it. Because a rent school is saying when we have truth, it is a coercive force. So she's bringing back this kind of tension between the philosopher and the politician. Insofar as that we have a tension between the two, democracy cannot be a coercive notion of truth because then we get into one-party dictatorships and totalitarianism. That's interesting. You brought up um, a little earlier on the way in which President Trump in particular has utilized the narrative form and um, particular perspective on truth and how it's continued throughout his presidency and even now you know in the weeks following his loss to joe biden and there's been this attempt despite the fact that mr biden's victory has been substantiated several times in the weeks since president trump has you know been charging of corruption and the election being rigged even before the election itself and, and I, I can't but wonder because like the art of deception's really been almost perfected by trump in some ways what do you think the impact of this continued dishonesty is going to be on on the American people? Because there are those, like you said, who believe him and really have embodied this falsehood. What then becomes the impact on the institutions of democracy in the U.S.? And are we seeing a situation where maybe these you know falsehoods, these sort of rhetorical devices are going a little too far? Yeah, very interesting question. It, it's interesting in Arendt's essay, Truth and Politics, as well, she hints at kind of like the American founding fathers, James Madison, Hamilton, and how they wrote the Declaration of Independence. And she has a really interesting notion on, we hold these truths. And she says, it is of the opinion, as soon as you write, we hold these truths, like we, a particular group of individuals, we hold these truths, which I think is very interesting to analyze of what is going on now in America, which is to say that the institutions in which bolstered the democracy in the U.S. are held together by opinion. I think she's drawing on the fragility of factual truth and how easily it could be hijacked, how easily it has been hijacked through the history of political thought. But when we have factual truth, I think it is very fragile and it's very contingent upon our likening towards truth. As I said, it's these, these reference points. So I'm thinking also of how we have science. Uh, you know, we live in the, the world of modern science. I'm thinking of another example of Thomas Kuhn. He says science and scientific progress like kind of operate in these paradigms, right? So we can't have a capital T scientific truth because, you know, it's operating in the realm of scientific opinion. Scientists have to say right now, what is the paradigm in which we are operating within knowledge and truth. So for example, I'm thinking of Galileo and his heliocentric uh, theory that the earth moves around the sun. And prior to that, we did not have the knowledge of a scientific paradigm of a heliocentric notion. Einstein's theory of relativity is another boundary pushing scientific truth, which shifts the paradigm according to Kuhn. And how this I think relates back to dishonesty and democracy in the falsehood of uh, what's going on with the Trump administration and institutions of the U.S. is that, to go back to the founding fathers and how they wrote the Declaration of Independence, it's this kind of opinion that needs to be upheld in institutions for them to be rendered legitimate and true by the people. So it's really interesting to take this notion of scientific knowledge, in which Arendt does this to him. She goes back all the way to Plato and uh, comes through scientific truth and then all the way to totalitarianism when when truth can do go too far it's interesting because she says in modernity truth can go so far because truth is a coercive force and this is what we have with the bending of facts in a totalitarian regime it's no longer factual truth it's the complete blurring of the lines between what is fact and what is fiction and it's just as much fact as it just just as much fiction so I'm thinking of the war in Orwell's 1984. It's Eurasia and East Asia and Eurasia and Oceania. Are, are, you know, what's the war, the propaganda war, they're always saying. And they say it over and over and it becomes the blurring. Like, I don't think Winston for a second believes it, but he's the, the purpose of what Orwell is saying is that once you get the blurring of truth and politics, it is a danger because factual truth becomes mere opinion and 
mere opinion can't be disassembled from factual truth. To get back on track, the impacts of the institutions on the public realm, I think as we're witnessing the unfolding of the American election still, it's still Biden's victory, uh, but we see from the other side that there are attempts to kind of undermine this. But the one interesting thing about modernity is, I can't stress enough this, what Arendt calls factual truth and opinion. And factual truth always relates to other people for our reference of politics. And she says this is established by witness and dependent on testimony. But our opinions in the marketplace, right, like as we go out into society, opinions are legitimate as long as they respect these kind of factual truths. And she is also saying that philosophical truth is still there. Like we still, as we see with these totalitarian regimes, like philosophical truth can come into the world as a complete and utter coercive force. But as long as we are political with the opinions of others, and we can say like, hey, what is your facts on this opinion? We, we avoid that philosophical truth because there is this real fragile tension between philosophy and politics, as I've tried, tried to say through this. The knowledge of this line, she says, in modernity starts with facts, which is really interesting. And what we're seeing with these, these alternative facts, you have to watch the slide into propaganda and these chips of bending of facts. And one example she provided is in Soviet history textbooks, there was no mention of Trotsky, who was part of the revolution. But uh, so, and I think we do a pretty good job of that in democracies, right? I hear all the time people using statistics to back up their opinions and these types of things, right? To, you know, and this is how you win arguments legitimately now. And, uh, you know, and this is the circulation of facts. It seems in some ways it's really inevitable, right? Because politics is based on different subjectivities, not necessarily coming to war, but butting heads, right? You know, in terms of policy, in terms of ideology, whatever. You know, but usually this is done through institutions, right? Whether it's done through elections, through parliament, through negotiation within all of that. And I can't help but look at the American example and see the way in which these differences in society, first of all, become so much more than just about different subjectivities of policy, but have become like, you know, identity based and like they're not necessarily going through those institutional channels of becoming resolved. It's these different movements, right? QAnon and then the Boogaloo movement, which are these more than anything else, they're they're narratives, they're myths. Right. And they, they spread so much throughout social media. And, and I just I, I find it so interesting how myth becomes like infectious even beyond the sort of American case. And these myths end up spreading into Canada as well. It almost seems like it's the inevitable point. Right. Because politics is about different subjectivities kind of butting heads. Maybe it eventually just is supposed to end, end up here. This us versus them dichotomy as opposed to actual discourse or engagement. Yeah, super interesting question because what would you say of social media? Is it a platform for democratic purposes? Or now do we see with QAnon and these types of movements that it's also a facilitation of untruth? Is social media promoting true opinions that are backed up by facts? And I mean, this is just, I would imagine, ridiculous on social media with the COVID with the pandemic, which was going on. I can only imagine the spread of misinformation and stuff. And so you got to think, of course, in Democrat in democracies, we want everyone to hold an opinion. But I like what Arendt is doing because she's grounding opinion in fact. And she's letting it, she's letting democracy and kind of political judgment decide for itself. She's saying disprove someone who <laughs> who has very shaky evidence uh, because that's the democratic purpose of interacting with others politically. You step outside, you're a political being and your facts and opinions need to bounce off the opinions of others, right? And this is how we're coming to our notions of truth and not being disingenuous or dealing in hypocrisy and fraud, right? But it's interesting, you get all these notions and society oh yeah politicians are lying and blah blah and in some of this you know we accept it. it's like okay 
politicians lie, taxes go up, it's, uh, you know, some type of things in life. And But but then we see went too far. Like I'm thinking of Richard Nixon as like a too far lie from our leaders, like something we don't accept. And the, the arm of the media was there reporting political truth and ousted kind of Nixon from office, which is interesting in itself. I think there's this bouncing off of ideas for Arendt to, to ground it factually. And kind of factual truth is something that needs to be guarded, which, which would be tied up in political judgment. No, it's strange to me because so much of those movements I mentioned are based on undermining what you would call the sources of political factual truth, right? It's very anti-intellectual, it's anti-scientific. You know, not to necessarily say the media in terms of private media is the purveyors of truth, but it's also very anti-elite media as well. And it's the media environment in terms of not just media, but in terms of science and research and all these things are problematized by a particular movement or a particular narrative as being problematic. I know it's it's just so fundamentally skewed against the sort of stuff Arendt says we have to keep holy and protect. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think through this, of course, we're doing politics. There are notions of truth. Uh, there's not a capital T truth unless you're Hegel and we're, all, we're <laughs> dialectically moving towards it, which could be another possibility in this instance. But Or it could be just as wonky. <laughs> It could be just as wonky, exactly. You know, I don't think QAnon is breaking Kuhn's scientific paradigms because they're self-deceived. And this is another thing Arendt brings up is that in the modern period, you can self-deceive. And I think this goes back to Orwell's 1984 as well. Like Winston is trying to hold on to his glimmer of hope and truth of humanity when the external world is doubting him so much. And, th and this is why I wanted to bring up the break with modernity because we're doing something different in modern practices. Like truth is not so easily given to us as it was for, for the ancients. And not that it was easy for the ancients. I mean, there was a lot of discipline and order in which a political society could become harmonious. And this is why you're dealing with the ideal. But what I want to bring back to the modern sense is that Descartes and Leibniz are saying that the human mind now produces truth. And, and this is how you get the origins of the modern scientific project. It's that like, hey, we, if we're viewing the modern world as a calculable coherence of forces, like we look at nature and we can say, you know, grass grows at X rate during this amount of time and we can create a chemical fertilizer for which to help make it grow is a, is, a, is a hypothetical scientific experiment, right? But something in which we do in the modern world and our mind producing that experiment is giving us a new truth. And these are Kuhn's scientific paradigms. We're, we're, like we have a notion of truth inside, inside these paradigms. And this was Descartes. Uh, you know, there's a popular song I heard on the radio called Therefore I Am. Like I think Therefore I Am, right? <laughs> this is Descartes and it's, it's a popular song right now, uh, which I find very interesting. So the artist has hopefully read some Descartes. But, <laughs> but yeah, it, this is what Descartes saying. He's saying... The, the, the world outside could be just completely falsehood. The only thing I absolutely know is my subjectivity. And therefore, when I, I, if I'm a thinking being, I exist. The modern project is a lot of this subjective, scientific, producing knowledge and truth. So to bring it back, this movement, QAnon and all these things, are, are kind of like they're not accepting facts, right, which is the, the underlying notion of democracy, which is fragile and needs to be guarded against, as Rand says. But at the same time, it's this wanting to self-delude. You want to have self-deception and things are not combated by facts, like you kind of disregard facts because you want to be in the modern project of producing something yourself, which you can't just take facts away and then have deception, self-deception, and self-deceitfulness. You can't just have these things like whenever you please, because we wouldn't have bearings for what we think is real in our political societies, if that makes sense. It would be eroded. Super fascinating. And social media, I do not know. What is social media doing? It's a, is it exacerbating this uh, you know, political falsehood, or is it making things more transparent as we bounce ideas off one another factually? And, and these types of things, or is it completely spreading myth? 
I mean, we know what my opinion is on the matter because my research kind of looks at that. It's such a strange thing, you know, like we were, when you were talking there, I was just thinking of Daniel Dale. He was a former Toronto Star reporter. Uh, he was basically the Washington Bureau for the Star for a while. Now he's working for CNN. And his whole thing is that he works his butt off to fact check President Trump whenever the president's, you know, making a speech or, you know, there's a release on policy or anything like that. He's very active on Twitter because that's his main communication form. And so after the election, he's like, I can't actually keep up with the amount of falsehoods here. Everything he is saying is not grounded in reality. It's not even that he, there's a basis. That's just a point of obsession for me lately. Just what happens when the highest office, not just in the land, but in the world, is just subsumed by this particular rhetorical form. Yeah. You know, going back to the sophists, it's uh, the rhetorical form and its notions of power or what is highest in life. This is what they believe, that truth is subsumed to profit and power. But, and, and to go back to social media and your research, like, what do you think? So how do you think social media's role in this? Is it, is it helping to get us towards the truth or is it, is it promoting the falsehoods that are being launched by the highest office? It, you know, my research, it's, it's preliminary so far, but it just seems that it's, it's promoting communication forms that are conducive for the latter, right? When you think of just the anonymity and the sort of language and forms of interaction that get promoted when people don't have to have face-to-face communication. And, you know, it almost being, ends up being a little savage in some ways when it comes to the point of disagreement. It's just very conducive to the myths, the us versus them sort of myths and promoting communitarian forms of communication and political engagement as opposed to discourse or even as opposed to like pluralist. It ends up being very isolationist and fragmented in nature, which is a scary thing because it's so ubiquitous, right? Especially in a time of pandemic, you know, people are engaging with one another through electronic sources, right? So... I'm wondering, we're, we're, we're in this position now where, by any stretch, it's somewhat calamitous in terms of the state of democracy. And my question, though, would be, like, how do we come back from this, right? Politics has become so utterly premised on dismantling and reconstituting fact right now. How do we then return to a better, more honest politics? Well, if history has taught us anything... I'm thinking of like the terror period of the French Revolution. We cannot head in this direction where they want to remake the world in its in a new way, uh, completely distorting classical and even certain modern that Rent talks about conceptions of truth. Some of the French revolutionaries wanted to remake the calendar and start with year one with 1793, like you know what Newell calls millenarian tyranny which is remaking the world in, in, its, in a new order. But this dismantling and reconstituting fact needs to be in the marketplace of opinions in which factual truth is still of the highest priority would be my substantial kind of answer into how we come back from this and reconstitute an opinion. So Red would definitely say it's, it's within the process of being a citizen, like become a more honest citizen and kind of combat the truth so we don't have a a slide into millenary tyranny and which, you know, the 20th century, we saw democracy slide into these kind of totalitarian regimes and, and rewriting history and these types of things all came into play when we have these kind of totalitarian slides. So rent at the end of her essay said the arm's length of the judiciary and the media, uh, make sure they remain kind of arm's length as you saw with the propaganda in Germany during the 1930s and into the 1940s, you know, we see these notions of propaganda, bending the truth, the media is hijacked, right? So keeping these, the judiciary impartial and the media as well, who return to more honest and factual politics. So, you know, it's a very interesting modern phenomenon in, in which we're living through right now. And Trump's presidency has exemplified for us and so this is why I want to touch on the modern and ancient conceptions with Machiavelli as this catalyst for our modernity, because there are these slides or these tendencies that 
we need to prevent against for democracies. For Arendt, at least, re- the reconstitution of a fact is very important in our political judgment, in our citizenship, for which we converse with others in order to kind of guard against that. Excellent. So it's been a couple of months since we last did a podcast together. We did a very interesting podcast on, on COVID and the sort of philosophical inferences since then. I'm just wondering, what are you working on these days? Has, has your project changed? Tell us about your work. Uh, yeah, my project at the moment is uh, this dissertation is a phenomenal experience. I'm looking right now kind of Hegel on history, and it's kind of enveloped in a lot of these things. I've been talking about truth politics, but Hegel on history is the amalgamation of interests. He's saying, you know, self-interest moves kind of history forward, and which to this absolute truth that I've kind of mentioned, but once we understand everyone's interests, we kind of move to new plateaus and we kind of have it in this thing he calls spirits, which we, which is a kind of understanding, conscious kind of understanding of, of our consciousness. Anyway, I'm trying, I'm trying to work through these things in my dissertation project at the moment, uh, which is an interesting project to, to say the least. It sounds like some fascinating stuff. I can't wait to hear more about it since it's kind of right up my alley, but thank you for taking the time to talk to us about these really important issues. Oh, thank you very much, Asa, for doing this. Uh, you've made me think a lot. Uh, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate this. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at CarltonU dot PolySci. <laughs>